Well, this evening I've been asked to preach upon the message of Elijah. Now, the life and ministry of the prophet Elijah is one that is very dramatic. It has been said that he comes in like a tempest and goes out like a whirlwind. And when you look uh, at what is recorded for us in the historical narrative in 1 Kings, uh, you will see that it is a very dramatic ministry indeed. You think of him upon Mount Carmel and his great confrontation with the prophets of Baal. You remember how he uh, was able to uh, replenish the widows of Zarephath's oil and barrel of meal. And you remember how that he was taken up in a whirlwind into heaven. And also we find the dramatic appearance with the Lord Jesus Christ in his transfiguration. And then the prophecy that Elijah here will uh, prepare the way for the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But let's have a little bit of background information about this man before we come to his message. Look with me in 1 Kings chapter 17, and you'll look at verse 1 of the chapter. 1 Kings chapter 17 and verse 1. It says, And Elijah, Elijah the Tishbite, who was of the inhabitants of Gilead, said unto Ahab, As the Lord God of Israel liveth before whom I stand, there shall not be dew nor rain these years, but according to my word. Now, here is the dramatic entry of a dramatic man. He breaks into the life of the nation here in a very sudden way. We're not told anything very much about his background. He suddenly appears in the palace and he comes to confront Ahab and to confront the palace with the fact that they have departed from God and they've turned away from the Lord. His name, Elijah, comes from two Hebrew words. The word El, which uh, is the name of uh, Jehovah, or uh, there is the, uh, the, the Yah there, actually. The El stands for uh, God, and the Yah, Jeho Elijah, speaks of Jehovah. And it means Jehovah is my God, or my God is Jehovah. And Elijah was the prophet of God to the northern kingdom of Israel, but his mission was one of confronting idolatry and apostasy. The king in his day, Ahab, had built a temple to Baal, and his wife Jezebel had brought a large entourage of priests of Baal and of the Asherah into the country. And this is the context of First Kings chapter 17, verse 1. As Elijah the Tishbite, he is sent of God to warn Ahab and to warn the kingdom about the apostasy and the sin that had entered into the kingdom. And really, the uh, challenge of his ministry is summed up in the words that he brings on Mount Carmel. He says to the people of the day, If the Lord be God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And in a day to come, I believe that Elijah will stand against the false message of the Antichrist 
as he did in the days when he was upon the earth uh, at first, and he will call people to the true and living God. We are told in Malachi chapter 4 here, and verses 5 and 6, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord, and he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children, and the heart of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. So here's a prophet for a day of apostasy. And it's not surprising that in a a day to come, this man who never died will reappear and confront the apostasy and the false religion of the day to come. He's a, a man for a day when the nation has departed from God, and his message then is relevant to that day in which he is called to minister. He ministers against the anti-Christianity of the day to come. And here we find in Malachi chapter 4 that Elijah is very much associated with the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible tells us, the Lord said, Elijah shall come first. He will come first. Before the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, Elijah will come. But I want us to think then about the message of this man, this man who is the great antagonist against a false religion of a day past and a day to come. There are some things about that message that I want you to see. And the first thing that I want you to see is the principle of his message. I want you to notice what it is that compelled this man to stand and to preach the word in his day and generation and in the day to come. Now, I think that you will find that the foundation principle of his message and his ministry is found in verse 1 of uh, 1 Kings chapter uh, 17. In 1 Kings chapter 17, and if you look at verse 1, we are told here, And Elijah the Tishbite, who was of the inhabitants of Gilead, said unto Ahab, As the Lord God of Israel liveth, before whom I stand, there shall not be dew nor rain these years, but according to my word. Now, I want you to see there, you don't have to look far to see what it was that motivated uh, Elijah in his ministry, in his message, in all that he was doing and will do. You'll see it in those words, as the Lord God of Israel liveth before whom I stand. Here's a man who is very conscious of the fact that he stands in the presence of God, that he's ministering for a God before whom I stand, he says. Now, I think that's the formative principle of his ministry and the life of this man. He is conscious that he's in the presence of God. Now, when you think of standing before someone, I think that the first thought there is of access. If you turn to 1 Kings chapter 10... And if you look at verse 8, we read about the Queen of Sheba coming uh, before 
Solomon in 1 Kings chapter 10 and verse 8. And we read how she speaks about her amazement at the wisdom of Solomon. And then she says this in 1 Kings 10 verse 8. She says, Happy are thy men, happy are these thy servants, which stand continually before thee, and hear thy wisdom. You'll notice that she speaks of those that stand continually in the presence of Solomon. And she says, these are happy. These servants who are in thy presence, are in Solomon's presence, and hear his wisdom. And they are there in his presence. They have this wonderful privilege of having access all the time into the presence of the king. She says, happy are these thy men. Happy are these thy servants, which stand continually before thee. They stood there constantly. And that's something that uh, was wonderful. And I think that when it speaks here of Elijah standing in the presence of the Lord, it's the same thought of access into the presence of the Lord himself. He is basking in the light of the presence of God. We know that Elijah was a man of prayer. And if you want grace in this day and in a day to come, if you want to stand for God in this day or a day to come, then you need to be conscious that the Lord looks upon you. You need to be in his presence to spend time with him. And I think there you have something of the secret of Elijah's ministry. He has access to God. But another thing I think that is true if we stand before God, is not only access, but availability. In 1 Kings chapter 10, the Queen of Sheba is speaking about the servants of uh, King Solomon. They stand in his presence. And I think there's something in what we're told about Elijah standing in the presence. He's the, the servants were there to be available to the commands of the king. So that when the king issued his command, they were ready to run and do whatever the king wanted them to do. And I think that's true of Elijah as well. This is the secret, that's the principle of his ministry and his message. He was standing, waiting for a word from God. He was standing, waiting to do the will of God. He wanted to carry out the desires of the king. And I think that as we look at him here in 1 Kings 17 and 18 and on, and also in a day to come, I think this continues to be the thing that marks this man. He stands ready, willing to do whatever it is that God wants him to do. There's another thought about standing before the king. Not only is there access and availability, but there's the thought of, audience. He's there to hear what the king has to say. Uh, you'll remember the, what the Queen of Sheba said. She said, happy are these thy men, or happy are these thy servants which stand continually before thee, and that hear thy wisdom. Whenever people have problems because, uh, or whenever people came with their problems, to King Solomon, she was amazed at the wisdom 
She said, These servants are happy because they hear thy wisdom. Now, what we need is to know the wisdom of God in this day. We need to be the Lord's messengers in the Lord's message. And here's a man who knew what God wanted him to say. He heard the word of God. But I think there you can see something of the principle of his message. The principle here is that he's a man who is in the presence of God and he brings the word of God. He brings the wisdom of God. And isn't that what it always needs to be in the ministry? We need to bring what God wants us to say in whatever day and generation we live. But then I want you to think about the peculiarity of his ministry. Not only the principle of his message, but the peculiarity of his message. There are a few peculiarities here, and one of them is that he's a man who felt alone. He's a man who stood alone. He was, there was nobody very much to be with him in the midst of his ministry. And in fact, it says in 1 Kings chapter 19 and verse 10, he lamented, he said, I, even I only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. It's not pleasant to be alone. It's not pleasant to be in a minority. It's not pleasant to be a remnant. It's not pleasant to be part of the crowd. But nevertheless, here's a man who's willing to stand alone. If it's only him who takes the stand, he's willing to take the stand. There's another peculiarity about his message, and that is it is the message of a man who never died. He was taken up by a whirlwind into heaven. We're told in 2 Kings chapter 2 and verse 11, and it came to pass as they still went on and talked, that behold there appeared a chariot of fire and horses of fire and parted them both asunder, and Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. So here's the dramatic departure of this man from the earth. He had a unique privilege of being the only other one who is taken up in that way is Enoch, the seventh from Adam, who was granted exemption from walking through the valley of the shadow of death. But here God gives him this special honor. But since Elijah did not die, we can reasonably expect that his ministry is not over. That there is a day when he will return to the scene of his ministry. Now, that is something that's confirmed by what we read in Malachi there a few minutes ago. But notice the picture he displays. He's taken up one day God's people will be taken up to meet the Lord in the air. The dead in Christ will rise first, and we which are alive and remain will be caught up to meet him in the air when our Savior comes again. But what a picture he is for us here. But we see the peculiarity of his message. But then I want you to see the prophecy about his message. If you turn again to Malachi chapter 4, and if you look at the portion of Scripture that we read, Malachi chapter 4, and if you look at verses 5 and 6, it says, Behold, I will send you a light to the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord, 
And he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children, and the heart of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. Now, to this day, in Jewish cedars, they include an empty chair at the table in the expectation that Elijah will come one day to herald the Messiah in fulfillment of Malachi's word. Now, while we are waiting for the return of the Savior, the Jews are waiting for the return of Elijah the prophet. Now, the question is whether this text in Malachi has already been fulfilled. Now, the contention is that it was fulfilled in John the Baptist. And he came before the Lord uh, Jesus Christ in his earthly ministry. And if you turn to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 17, and if you look at verse 11, it says there in Matthew chapter 17, and verse 11, it says, And Jesus answered and said unto them, Elias truly shall come first and restore all things. Elias will come first and restore all things. And then the Lord goes on and it says, uh, he says in verse 12, But I say unto you that Elias is come already, and they knew him not, but have done unto him whatsoever they listed. Likewise shall also the Son of Man suffer of them. And then it says this in verse 13, Then the disciples understood that he spake unto them of John the Baptist. So here it is, the Lord speaks of Elijah that he's already come, and that they did not receive him. And the disciples understand that what he's saying, he's speaking of John the Baptist, that Malachi's prophecy is fulfilled in John the Baptist. So there seems to be a clear indication that John the Baptist is Elijah. But we need a wee minute here because when you read what it says in Malachi chapter 4, it says that Elijah the prophet will come before the great and dreadful day of the Lord. Now that would indicate that what we're talking about is the second coming, not the incarnation, not his first coming, it, 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 the great and dreadful day of the Lord's the second coming. So how do we work this? What is this all about? Well, I think we need to look at John the Baptist and his relationship to Elijah. Turn over to Matthew chapter 17, or what is said in Matthew chapter 17, that the disciples took the Lord uh, to be saying that he was John the Baptist. Now, turn then from 17 to chapter 11. And look at verses 13 to 15. Matthew chapter 11, uh, verses 13 to uh, 15. And we read here, For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if ye will receive it, this is Elias, which was for to come. He that hath ears to hear, let him hear. Now, the... uh, Lord says here that he is Elias. 
So was he Elias? Is that what the Lord is meaning here? Well, I want you to think about what was prophesied or what was said in the announcement of the uh, birth of John the Baptist. Turn over to John's uh, Gospel, chapter 1. Um, rather, to Luke, Luke's Gospel, chapter 1. And you'll see there the announcement of the coming uh, of, uh, or the birth of uh, John the Baptist. The angel comes and uh, uh, prophesies that uh, John will be born, and we read there how that uh, Elizabeth was to uh, conceive. But it says in Luke chapter 1, verse 17, now speaking about John the Baptist, and he shall go before him, go before the Messiah. He shall go before him in the spirit and power of Elias to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. So here is the identification of John the Baptist again with Elijah. But I want you to notice what the angel actually says. He doesn't say that John is Elijah, but he says that he will minister in the spirit and power of Elias. And then just to put another thing into the mix, and I hope that I'm not putting too many things into the mix, but hold all these things together. We'll try and bring it together in a minute. But uh, t- turn now to John's Gospel, chapter 1. And look at uh, verse 20, because here is the, uh, are the people and the Levites and some of the, the uh, uh, priests, and they come inquiring of John the Baptist who he is. And the first thing that they want to know is, is he the Christ? Is he the Messiah? And it says in verse one, uh, 20 of chapter 1, this is John the Baptist himself speaking, and he confessed and denied not, but confessed, I am not the Christ. Now, the next question is this. Are you Elias? Are you Elijah? What then, they say, art thou Elias? Now, here we want to notice what John the Baptist actually says. We're asking the question, is John the Baptist the ultimate and whole fulfillment of Elijah the prophet? And I want you to see what he says here. And he saith, I am not. And they say, Art thou that prophet? And he answered, No. So John the Baptist here is unequivocal by what he's saying. He says, No, I am not Elijah. I am not Elijah. Well, what then do we make of the Lord's statements in Matthew 17 and Matthew 11, where it seems to indicate that the Lord is saying, yes, he is Elijah. Well, you need to remember the context, particularly in Matthew chapter 11, because, um, or in Matthew chapter 17, because the context in Matthew chapter 17 is the transfiguration. Now, what had happened is that Elijah... The actual Elijah had appeared with Moses. Now, we think of the appearance of Elijah the prophet. 
And when Elijah appeared on the Mount of Transfiguration, you can imagine the racing thoughts of the uh, disciples. They knew all the speculation of the uh, scribes and Pharisees about how Elijah must come first. And they're saying, well, here is Elijah. Here is Elijah. Now, is the kingdom about to uh, be ushered in? What's going to happen? And this is the context in which the Lord says, Elias shall truly, or Elias truly shall come first and restore all things. But I say unto you that Elias is already come, and they knew him not, but have done unto him whatsoever they listed. Likewise shall also the Son of Man suffer. What did the Lord mean? Well, the first thing that you should remember is that the Lord here is talking about how Elijah already has appeared, and he's saying that Elijah shall come first. He speaks in the future tense. Now, there is a sense then in which John the Baptist ministered in the spirit and power of Elias, but he denies that he's Elijah himself. And the Lord now, speaking in the context where Elijah himself had appeared with him on the Mount of Transfiguration, says, Elias shall, truly, Elias shall come first. And he's speaking in the future tense. And what we're saying then is, to sum it up, is that, yes, there's a sense in which John the Baptist ministered in the spirit and power of Elias, but he denied that he was Elijah himself. But there is that thought of a future fulfillment when Elias himself will come before that great and terrible day of the Lord. And we think of how the Lord uh, was the suffering Messiah in his first coming, So he was gone before by a suffering forerunner. And in a time to come, there is that uh, dramatic ministry of Elijah before the dramatic coming of the Lord Jesus Christ in power and in great glory. But we think of how there is a fulfillment in in John the Baptist, but there is also a fulfillment to come. But then I want you to think about the pinnacle of his message. Now, the prophecy is that there will be the coming of Elijah before the great and terrible day of the Lord. Now, is there any indication of that in God's Word? Is there any indication of the fact that Elijah will come? Well, turn with me now to the book of Revelation and to chapter 11. And there we read about the two witnesses. Let me read what it says in Revelation chapter 11 and verses 3 to 13. And it says, And I will give power unto my two witnesses, and they shall prophesy a thousand two hundred and threescore days clothed in sackcloth. That's three and a half years. These are the two olive trees and the two candlesticks standing before the God of the earth. And if any man will hurt them, fire proceedeth out of their mouth and devoureth their enemies. 
And if any man will hurt them, he must in this manner be killed. These have power to shut up heaven, that it rain not in the days of their prophecy, and have power over waters to turn them to blood, and to smite the earth with all plagues as often as they will. And when they shall have finished their testimony, the beast that ascendeth out of the bottomless pit shall make war against them, and shall overcome them and kill them. And their dead bodies shall lie in the street of the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. And they of the people and kindreds and tongues and nations shall see their dead bodies three days and a half, and shall not suffer their dead bodies to be put in graves. And they that dwell upon the earth shall rejoice over them, and make merry, and shall send gifts one to another, because these two prophets tormented them that dwell on the earth. And after three days and a half, the Spirit of life from God entered into them, and they stood upon their feet, and great fear fell upon them which saw them. And they heard a great voice from heaven saying, Come up hither. And they ascended up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies beheld them. So here was these two witnesses. Now, we have a description of these men in the uh, three and a half years that correspond to the first three and a half years of Daniel's 70th week. So, here they are, and this is the time before the time of Jacob's trouble, but we find that they are ministering then, they're killed then by the Antichrist, their bodies are left in the streets, and they are um, left there, people rejoice over their death because they've tormented them, and then we read that after three and a half days, Life is given to them by the Lord, and they're resurrected out of the dead. Now, who are these? Well, the Bible doesn't say. But if you look at the commentators, you will see that many of them look at the miracles that they do, and there's a great correspondence between what they do and what are the miracles that Elijah the prophet did and Moses did. If you look there in verse 6, you'll see that they're able to um, uh, stop the, um, uh, the rain. That's what Elijah did, or by his prayer anyway. God stopped the rain. But Elijah, by his prayer and by the power of God, was able to stop the rain. And then you read how they're able to smite the earth with plagues and turn the water into blood. blood. Of course, that is a correspondence with what? Um, Moses did. Now, there are others who speculate that it is um, not only Elijah, but Enoch. The two men, um, the Bible says, a point on the man wants to die, and after this, the judgment. So people say, well, it's the two men that never died, Enoch and Elijah. But whatever they say, you'll find that all the commentators will say that one of these is Elijah the prophet. Now, I want you then to see the message of these two witnesses. Look at the content of their message. The first thing is that they declare God's message. You remember how Elijah stood in his day against false religion, 
Moses stood in his day against the, all of the plagues were against the gods of Egypt. If you were to study it, you'll find that each one of them has reference to the gods of Egypt. They both stand against the false religion and the idolatry of their day. And they will declare, as it were, if the Lord be God, follow him. Now, consider with me how they do it. Look at verse 3. It tells us that they're clothed in sackcloth. And sackcloth there is the sign of mourning. They're preaching misery. They're not preaching hope or comfort here. We think of Jeremiah, the weeping prophet. And we think how the Savior wept over Jerusalem because of its sin. And you know, when people depart from the Lord, it should cause us to weep. It should cause us to be serious. And this is a serious message. They're not clowns. They're not there for entertainment here. These two witnesses, they are there to bring the message of God. We have a message from God in this day and generation. And we read in 1 Kings chapter 17, verse 1 of Elijah, striding into the palace. And it says, And Elijah the Tishbite, who was from the inhabitants of Gilead, said unto Ahab, As the Lord God of Israel liveth before whom I stand, there shall not be dew nor rain these years, but according to my word. There's a boldness about Elijah. And I think that boldness that he manifested in his life will continue as we see him here stand against the Antichrist in a day to come. I have a book at home in which it likens the way that uh, Elijah went into the palace in Samaria like an Ulster Protestant striding up the Falls Road with a Union Jacks shouting down with the IRA or with an Israeli going into the midst of the Gaza Strip with an Israeli flag and uh, seeking to uh, stand there. Well, that's what it's like here. And Elijah goes into the palace and proclaims. And you know that Ahab treated the prophets of the Lord. He sought to kill them. But here's a man with boldness, a man who's ready to speak. And you'll notice what they say here in Revelation chapter 11, verses 5 to 6. It says, here's their message. And if any man will hurt them, fire proceedeth out of their mouth and devoureth their enemies. And if any man will hurt them, he must in this manner be killed. These have power to shut heaven, that it rain not in the days of their prophecy, and of power over waters to turn them to blood, and to smite the earth with all plagues, as often as they will. Elijah wasn't into the niceties. Now, I'm not advocating rudeness in any way, but you know there are times when we need to just boldly state the message. As the Lord God of Israel liveth before whom I stand, there shall not be dew nor rain these years, but according to my word. He just states it boldly. There's not very much introduction there when he goes into the palace. Now, I'm not advocating rudeness, but there are times when this world needs to hear the message of God boldly and boldly. I remember a few years ago when Ulster Rugby were going to have their first match on a Sunday. It's only a couple of years ago. And many of the Christian players uh, protested. And they said that they didn't want 
to take place on a Sunday. And many supporters said that they didn't want it to take place. And there was a discussion about this on the radio. And really, at the end of the discussion, what it amounted to is we just dismiss what the Christians have to say. Doesn't matter. Isn't that the way in this day and generation increasingly so? Oh, it matters what so many people say. The LGBT lobby. It, it matters what um, the, uh, uh, the, the uh, black lobby have to say. It matters about what uh, the uh, oppressed lobby have to say. It matters what the Islamic lobby have to say. But if the Christians have something to say, well, we can dismiss that. It doesn't matter. And there are times when it needs, the world in which we live needs to be confronted with the message. We see the content of the message. But look at the character of the message. Notice that in the days of Ahab, Elijah proclaimed a God who lives. As the Lord God of Israel liveth before whom I stand. And that's what he will do with the Antichrist in Revelation chapter 11. He will proclaim a God who exists. A God who is sovereign. A God who rules over the elements of this world. Who sets up kings and brings down kings. When Elijah spoke about the living God, he's not speaking about a dead formula. He's speaking about a living faith. Something that is real. A God who had never failed him. A God who had never failed his people. We live in a day when it said, doesn't matter what you believe, but it does. We need to proclaim the Lord, God who lives. If the Lord be God, then follow him. Look at the confidence of his message. How could Elijah proclaim this thing so boldly and confidently? Well, the Bible says the people that do know their God shall be strong and do exploits. We need to know God. We need to know his word. We need to know what his word says. We need to know what it says about the time to come. As the Lord God liveth. We're conscious that we come to reclaim a delivering God, a victorious God, a sovereign God. The Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save. Something else. Look at the compliment to the message. Because the message in Revelation 11 is complemented by signs. If you look at verses 5 and 6, it says, And if any man will hurt them, fire proceedeth out of their mouth and devoureth their enemies. And if any man will hurt them, he must in this manner be killed. These have power to shut heaven that it rain not in the days of their prophecy, and have power over waters to turn them to blood, and to smite the earth with all plagues as often as they will. So here's something that's very up to date. We're living in a day when we're in the midst of a virus pandemic. Well, it says here that uh, these have power to shut up heaven and to smite the earth with all plagues as often as as they will. Terrible new viruses, revitalized plagues, and they will be given power by God at this particular time. But I want you to see this, that despite these mighty miracles and these wonderful things that these men do, 
that still men reject. And you know, it gives the lie to the often claimed adage, you know, if the Lord was to show me his power, I'd believe. No, doesn't matter how much power. And his power is displayed all around us in nature. But it doesn't matter. Man shuts his eyes to the glory of God. But here's the pinnacle of his message. He declares the Lord God before whom he stands. But something else that I want you to see is the purpose of the message. Now, turn with me back to Malachi chapter 4, and again look at verses 5 and 6. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord, and he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children, and the heart of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. Now, in those Um, verses, we're told that Elijah would come before the great and dreadful day of the Lord. Now, what would he do? Well, I want you to see the purpose of his ministry is a message of rebuke. Look at what it says at the end of the verse 6 there. Lest I come and smite the world or smite the earth with a curse. Now, what is what are, what are the men in Revelation chapter 11 do? Well, they begin to smite the earth with curses and plagues and so on. You know, I, I think that we can say that when you look at 1 Kings chapter 17, that Elijah, or rather Jezebel, is a type of the whore of Babylon. And she ruled over Israel. Ahab really was a puppet during Elijah's ministry. And we think of how Babylon, the great whore, will dominate the latter ministry of Elijah. And Elijah comes to rebuke the apostasy of thy day. But I want you to see that uh, Elijah's ministry is a ministry of rebuke. Now, we've seen something of that as we look at Revelation chapter 11. But it says in 1 Kings 17, verse 1, And Elijah the prophet, uh, or Elijah the Tishbite, who was of the inhabitants of Gilead, said unto Ahab, As the Lord God of Israel liveth before whom I stand, there shall not be dew nor rain these years, but according to my word. Now the lack of dew or rain there always has been a sign of God's displeasure. Now, I wonder if there's any correspondence between that and what we read in the prophecy of uh, Joel, in the book of Joel, chapter um, uh, Joel chapter 1 and verses 18 to uh, 20. It says there, Reveille, or sorry, Joel chapter 1, verse 18. It says, speaking of these days, How do the beasts groan? The herds of cattle are perplexed, because they have no pasture. Yea, the flocks of sheep are made desolate. O Lord, to thee will I cry, for the fire hath devoured the pastures of the wilderness, and the flame hath burned all the trees of the field. The beasts of the field cry also unto thee, 
for the rivers of water are dried up and the fire had devoured the pastures of the wilderness. So there is a drought and there is a drying up of the pastures. There is a drought, there's a famine. In verse 15 of Joel chapter 1, it pronounces the nearness of the day of the Lord and then it speaks about these things, these agricultural problems. Now, I realize I'm speculating a little, but I wonder, has Elijah been involved here? But then I want you to notice that the purpose of his ministry, according to Malachi 4, is reconciliation. Malachi 4, verse 6, And he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children, and the heart of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the the earth with a curse. There is reconciliation. Now here is a picture that seems to be a little different from the picture that we get in Revelation chapter 11. In Revelation chapter 11, it seems that there's a message of fire and condemnation, and obviously there's a ministry of fire and rebuke, as we've said. But Malachi tells us that part of the ministry is also reconciliation. So obviously, the whole of the ministry isn't fire and rebuke. There is also this element of reconciliation. Now, this is where I couldn't find anything to help me, so I've had to wrestle with this, and you may disagree with me and debate over this, but I've tried to compare Scripture with Scripture. There is the sense here of family reconciliation, the fathers to the children, but the expression in the text there in Malachi chapter 4 is peculiar. And the thought seems to be that Elijah's work is to turn or convert the parents to be humble and childlike and teachable as little children and turn their hearts from the air of sin and unfaithfulness and lead them back to the faith of their fathers, to the faith of the patriarchs, to the faithful Hebrew, to the prophets of old. That seems to be the sense of reconciling apostate Israel to the true faith. There are echoes of choose ye this day whom ye will serve. Now, the rule of Elijah then will be to turn the people who have long rejected the truth and rejected the message of the Messiah and turn them back to the truths that their fathers held to. But will they turn back? Now, that's the question. What we read in the prophets would lead to the conclusion that they will not turn back at the time of the tribulation or till after the tribulation is over. And from what we read about the true witnesses, they will have long gone from the scene by that time. And yet the prophecy seems to say, it says, and he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children and the heart of the children to their fathers. Now, that would make it sound as if there is an actual turn that takes place, that there is some kind of repentance that takes place. Whereas the rest of the Scriptures seem to indicate that it will not happen until after the tribulation. So how do we work this out? Well, turn to the Scriptures that speaks about the time of Israel's turning. Turn over to the uh, prophecy of Zechariah chapter 13. 
and uh, look at um, verse uh, 8 to 9, chapter 13, verse 8 to 9 of Zechariah. And it shall come to pass that in all the land, saith the Lord, two parts therein shall be cut off and die, but the third shall be left therein. And I will bring the third part through the fire and will refine them as silver is refined and will try them as gold is tried. They shall call on my name and I will hear them and I will say it is my people and they shall say the Lord is my God. Now there is a reference to them being cut off and dying. The reference there is to the time of Jacob's trouble. And as I say, by this stage, the two witnesses are gone. But I want you to notice the reference to two-thirds being cut off and a third being saved. Now, there's a resonance there with part of Elijah's ministry because in um, 2 Kings, I first Kings chapter 1, but I think it's 2 Kings chapter 1. I'll just turn to it. 2 Kings chapter 1. And if you look at that portion of Scripture, if you look at verse 13, um, yeah, and um, you'll, you'll, anyway, the story is that the king of Syria here, the heathen come, these apostate bands, the enemies of God, they come in a number of bands of 50. And two of the bands of 50 are destroyed. But the last band, the captain of the band comes in Second Kings chapter 1 and verse 13. It says, And he sent a captain of the third fifty, which with his fifty, and the third captain of fifty went up and came and fell on his knees before Elijah and besought him and said unto him, O man of God, I pray thee, let my life and the life of these fifty thy servants be precious in thy sight. So the third fifty is saved. Two-thirds perish, one-third is saved. And there seems to be a resonance with what we read in Zechariah 13 about two-thirds being destroyed and a third saved. So here's a little picture here. But then I want you to notice what the people cry in Zechariah chapter 13 when they turn to the Lord. They cry, the Lord is my God. Now, isn't that interesting? What is the meaning of the name Elijah? The Lord is my God. So when they make this cry, they're really crying a form of the name Elijah. And what I think that we're having indication of here is that though Elijah has gone, the prophets have gone, I think that the message that Elijah preached has resonance and it has been so dramatic that it's still in the minds and the hearts of the people. And when they look upon him in their prayers, when there is that turning to God, they are remembering the message of Elijah. And in that sense, the, the Elijah has turned them to the Lord. There is something else. Not only is there a message of rebuke, and there is a message here of reconciliation. But there's a message of repentance. Notice again what we read in Malachi chapter 4 and verse 6. It says that Elijah will, uh, shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children, and the heart of the 
children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. Now, that uh, phrase, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse, is actually a little bit ambiguous in the Hebrew. But we have an interpretation given by John's father in Luke chapter 1, verse 17. It's, uh, it's the actually Gabriel's interpretation, it's the angel's interpretation when he speaks with John's father. And he says, this, this is how Gabriel interprets that prophecy, that the, uh, John the Baptist or Elijah will come to turn the disobedient. This is Luke chapter 1, verse 17, by the way. He will turn the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Now, do you see it? I, I think we can see. He makes ready. What does Elijah do? He makes ready a people prepared for the Lord. So when the Lord comes, he's preparing them for the Lord. So when the Lord comes, they look upon him whom they have pierced, and they cry out, The Lord is my God! Like Elijah. Luke helps us to better understanding the meaning of Elijah's rule when he speaks about turning the disobedient to the wisdom of the just. Elijah's rule is like John the Baptist. He preaches, turn, turn to the Messiah. And as John the Baptist preached the message of repentance, so Elijah preaches the message of repentance. And as he did uh, in the spirit of Elijah, John the Baptist, before the first coming of Christ, so Elijah, before the second coming of Christ, there is a message of repentance. And then there's a message of restoration. Look at Matthew chapter 17 and verse 11. And Jesus answered and said unto them, Elias truly shall come first and restore all things. And I think we can take that in the same way that he will prepare a people for that restoration. He makes ready a people prepared for the Lord. So we notice that Elijah will come first. But we also remember that there's a greater than Elijah to come. The Jews have made this mistake of looking for Elijah when they should be looking for the greater than Elijah. It's interesting, actually, when you look in Matthew chapter 17 and read about the transfiguration and how Moses and Elijah were there. And we read in Matthew chapter 17, verses 5 to 8, it says, While he yet spake, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and behold, a voice out of the cloud which said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him. And when his disciples heard it, they fell on their face and were sore afraid. And Jesus came and touched them and said, Arise, and be not afraid. And when up, they had lifted up their eyes, they saw no man save Jesus only. Elijah and Moses faded into the background. And they saw no man, save Jesus only. He's the one who has preeminence. He's the one that we serve. He's the one 
that we stand in the presence of and the one that we minister to today. May we uplift and glorify his name and his uh, blessed message in this day in which we live. May God write his word upon our hearts for his name's sake.